This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And I'm very, very, very excited to have my guest today, Suzanne Skurlock-Durana. Is that That's not? exactly right. Nice. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so a little about Suzanne uh, is that healing from the core curriculum combined with craniosacral therapy and other bodywork modalities creates a complete body-centered guide to awareness, healing, and joy. She is the author of Full Body Presence, and she teaches around the world and lives in Reston, Virginia. Healingfromthecore.com is where you can find out more about her and her work. And we're going to be talking today about her phenomenal book called Reclaiming Your Body. And uh, the subtitle spoke to me immediately healing from trauma, and awakening to your body's wisdom. So, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I want to actually start with a question um, that it was, you wrote something, it was early on in the book, and I remember actually, Suzanne and I were speaking before this interview about a, a, a mutual colleague, Gabor Mate, and um, I remember I was speaking with him a few years ago, and he was the first person who brought this to light for me. And yeah. then I, I read that you wrote it, and I think when I heard it, it was so important to me. And then hearing you write about it, I wanted to just briefly read like a paragraph or two about this and maybe start here, because I think this is so important for people uh, to understand because I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about traumas, which the majority of your book, that's what it's about. Right. I had the misperception that traumas were, you know, terrorist attacks or natural disasters okay. or being severely beaten or molested as a child. Mm-hmm. And I didn't recognize that there were big traumas and little traumas. Mm-hmm. And you wrote, um, mine is not an uncommon common story. My traumas were not large, relatively speaking. Some might not consider them traumas at all. I certainly have been witness to friends and clients in my therapeutic practice and classes who have experienced far worse. Yet trauma is a subjective experience. We should not judge our own traumas as being large or small by comparing them with anyone else's experiences. Not even doctors can know 
the personal impact of the individual's experiences and how they may be stored in their system. Mm. And I wanted to start with that kind of selfishly, to be honest with you, because mm. when Gabor, you know, brought that to my attention, it really opened up a whole new world for me to explore because a lot of the people I know um, that are in recovery from drugs and alcohol, which is what I struggled most closely with, Mm -hmm. they have these stories of significant childhood traumas. I mean, really big capital T traumas. But as Gabor mentioned that, and I thought about my childhood, uh, you know, I am very blessed with amazing parents. They're just celebrated their 40th anniversary but they mm-hmm. had me when they were 21. They were far from perfect. They made many mistakes. And so I started thinking about it and all of the, you know, what we can call little T traumas. Yeah. So maybe we could start there and, and let's talk about the difference and, and how they can still affect us greatly. Yeah. So one of the things you brought up, Gabor Mate, so I will... Um, I'll share something that he actually just spoke about in a conference. Great. In London, he and Bezel Vanderkock were on the same stage at different times. Yeah. And he knew that Bezel was going to be coming up next. And he said, you know, I know Bezel and we're good buddies. And and Bezel speaks beautifully, beautifully about the traumatic events that can cause us to really have many, many different things go wrong inside in our systems. Those things that happen to us that are terrible. Mm things that happen to children in poverty in inner city homes where you've got a parent who's incarcerated, you've got, uh, you've been beaten, you've got an older sibling who molests you, you've got, there's no sense of safety in the house, you never know where your next meal is coming from. He says those, and, and Gabor was saying, those are the traumas that are things that happen that are bad. He said the thing that most people don't recognize, and this might be part of what you're talking about, Chris, is the things that should have happened Mm. in terms of healthy attachment that did not. So in a sense, what Bezel is the king of is speaking about trauma that happens to us. What Gabor talks about is the things that should have happened for us and never did, thus leaving us with this empty, um, it is traumatic to not have those things in our lives, but that emptiness often is what causes us to uh, to feel as though something is really, really wrong. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like a it's the 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 things that didn't happen but should have. Yeah. Versus the things that did happen that were god awful. Right. 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 Both of these both of these cause trauma for us, small and large. Right. And each and every one of us has things. Many times we have written them off and they're out of our consciousness. They're, they're back here somewhere, but we don't even register them anymore. And yet because of them, we feel as though we have a, um, almost like there's a hole in our system somewhere. Yeah. 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 A yeah. deficiency, and that, a, uh, I know exactly what you're saying. Yes. Or, or a blockage of some kind. Right. Okay. That was too painful. I, oh got to shut that off. Okay. And then I got to shut this off and then I got to shut this off. And suddenly you're living behind walls and you're no longer really a in your body fully. And B you're not really connected to the world in a present moment way. You're living from things that happened back there that, that where you really missed out or where something really bad happened and you had to clamp down or exit 
dissociation is a, a common experience when people have major traumas. Right, yeah. right. And so a lot of the work we you talk about in the book is reassociating these traumas and learning how to really tune into our bodies um, as a way of naturally, you know, working yeah. with them. And I really appreciated that. Um, you actually say that the body has its own language that is <laughs> older and more primal than most of us realize. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading that. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, you know, because even as cavemen, you know, we still had that, you know, our brain's still developing, but mm -hmm. there is innate bodily wisdom happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Can, can you talk a bit about that? So the primal language of the body is actually felt sense. It is visual imagery that we get. It might be waves of emotions that come through. It may be just a sense of knowing something. And you don't even know where it came from. Um, gut hunches, you know, the deep inspiration of the heart, the steady clarity that you suddenly feel inside when you're able to get very quiet and deep inside your bones, the feeling of, of getting the, the felt sense of, of walking and swinging your arms and getting very, in a way, mindless and yet some deep wisdom as you're walking and swinging your arms is happening. All of this wisdom comes bubbling up from the body and informs the brain. And what we're now seeing in the recent literature and also in the, the uh, research is that a lot of what goes on in the brain is coming from input from the body that is beyond the, the normal sensory input. So what's interesting to recognize then is that that, um, that gut hunch that you have about something that you might say, oh, gosh, my hunch was right, mm -hmm. or, oh, my heart went out to her, or um, all the different phrases that we say, oh, I was chilled to the bone. Mm -hmm. we, we have these little phrases, these idioms that we say, and yet um, we don't even think about them. We don't give them validity. We Most of us live between here and here. So mm -hmm. that's really kind of the key piece is that feeling, that felt sense of, yes, there is something here. There's something here. There's something deep in my bones that has a wisdom that's beyond what I was taught here. Right. And, and actually, quite honestly, the more educated you are, the harder it is to make this contact yeah. because you've been so indoctrinated into the school of I must know everything and it's got to be logical and it's got to be reasonable and it's got to be rational and it's all going to emanate from here. And for me, one of the biggest things that was um, a wonderful wake up was that the brain is not the boss. Yeah. Our brain is just part of the committee of who we are. And it's an important part of the committee. It's the great, I call it the great strategizer and creative map maker. Sure. But it's not actually the king or the queen. You know, right. it's, it's, it, it operates best at the behest of the clarity of our hearts, our guts, our bones, everything in the body. Mm. It's all a team. And yeah. you talk in the book, and I know this is personal, so if you don't feel like um, discussing, I, I understand, but you share a story uh, elaborating on the body's innate wisdom. And yeah. you were in, uh, I believe, a vehicle with a gentleman. And yeah. something about you just felt very off. Mm -hmm. And 
maybe it was half an hour or so. Mm -hmm. Um, I apologize if my timeline's off, but all of a sudden this person strangles you. So that particular experience was a real game changer for me. I mean, I was 17 years old. You know, I had smoked pot and drank beer and, you know, done all the normal teenage things, but I had no real concept of the hard drug culture that was going on underneath everything. And my friend, who's actually a very dear friend, I thought of him like an older brother. He was so sweet. He was very kind. And I didn't know that he was crashing on amphetamines. And you've done things with the drug culture. You know the violence that comes out in circumstances because of what happens in the brain with that. I didn't know that. All I knew, and it was fascinating to me, Chris, because here we are, we're sitting in the car, we're having a conversation. I, I thought he wanted to talk to me to talk about a problem he was having and, you know, talk it over. And, and, and so we're just chatting away. There was nothing in his voice. There was nothing in his demeanor. There was, it, it was a perfectly normal kind of a circumstance. And I turned away for a moment to look out the window and the next thing I knew, his hands were around my neck. And uh, he was so strong that I just went out like that. I, I, there was no struggle, nothing, just boom. I wake up, my head's plastered against the door. But the fascinating thing for me through that whole piece, when I actually went back and began to reflect on it, was that my gut knew 20 minutes to a half an hour before he got violent that something was off. And there was nothing visual. There was nothing auditory. There was, but my gut knew something bad was coming. And it just kept kind of giving me the signal, get out of the car, get out of the car, leave, get out of the car. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I can't get out of the car. This is my good friend. Oh my goodness, he would feel bad. He, he would feel worse than whatever it is we need to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I left and I have to be a nice person and poof, well, needless to say for me, that lesson, once I recognized it, was it just changed my whole trajectory in my world. Because up until that point, the traumas that I had had in my life had been those, those small things we talked about early on. Right. You know, this thing that didn't happen and that thing that didn't happen and this way that I didn't get heard and this way that I didn't get seen. Yeah. Um, I also had lovely parents, very kind um, yes, they made mistakes. All parents do. I'm a parent. I understand this. And, and may my children have enough money for good therapy when they when they need. <laughs> but but I, I, you know, having said that, this was the first major major thing. And I got to tell you, I never let my gut go by again yeah. without trusting it and listening to it. Uh, and there's a story I talk about in my first book. This was just a couple of years after this first event at 17. I was in college. I had gone on a first date with this very popular basketball player. We're sitting in somebody's dorm room, drinking beer, and everybody, the music's loud. And and one by one, everybody was getting up and leaving except me and him. And all of a sudden, I started to have that uneasy feeling in my gut again. And I, I, I listened I made some lame excuse about needing to go to the bathroom and I left and I didn't go back. And very interestingly enough, very shortly thereafter, the stories began to surface on campus. It was a small campus that he was date raping women. And Uh, I just thought to myself, whoa, okay, 
thank you, God, I got it. I will never not listen to you again. And I and, and so that began to build. I started with the gut. Then I began to work on what was the intelligence of the heart and the pelvis and your feet and legs and your bones and all of those grew wow. across the years. But honestly, that curiosity and that edge of listening to that and looking at that started right back there at the age of 17. Mm. Um, and it just has built and built and built. Ever yeah. since. And, and I know you do talk about the uh, intelligence of the heart and the mm. pelvis, and we will get to that. Um, what I wanted to do first, though, was I appreciate very early in the book, you um, talk about five body-related myths. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm reading them, and I'm like, mm-hmm, check, check, check. So <laughs> I was wondering, would you mind going through those five and, and, uh, and talking a little bit about each one? Yeah, well, I, I'm just going to have to get the exact wording on them because we went round and round about. Yeah, um, for sure. I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with number five because that's, that's the one I've got it open to. Sure. The, body, the body knows far less than the brain. Now, this is when we were just actually talking about when I was saying the brain is not the boss and when I was saying that people that are highly, highly educated, the physicians, the physical therapists, the psychologists that I have in my trainings, and I have a lot of them in my trainings, um, they have the hardest time letting go of what they know here because they have worked so hard to get this knowledge and to, to have the, you know, the, the degree, to have the stature in their life and their, their knowing that comes through their education, that the possibility that there's something more primal and simpler than that is always astounding to them. And there will often be um, a, a whole series, as they're learning to trust their body, there'll be a whole level of second-guessing themselves. So in one of my classes or in a session with me, they might have a huge aha moment. And, whew, oh my God, I can't believe that. How, where did that come from? And they know that it's real in the moment, right? And they, they leave there and they, wow, everything changed. And they'll come back the next week or if I'm in the class the next day saying, you know, I was thinking about that. That's always a cue to me that they're starting to second guess themselves already. So that is one that I actually see a lot. It's one of the more difficult ones if someone is really, really wedded to their intellect. Mm. And and that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I have... I have good intellect, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not someone who has a, a lot of degrees after my name. And so I have learned a lot more from my inside out. And so I don't have that problem as much, although I did at the age of 17. Yeah. I didn't. I, I second-guessed my gut, and it almost killed me. Mm. So you know, that's kind of an interesting piece. So number four is the body is out of control and must be dominated. You know, this is, um, these are people that are athletes. These are people that have um, really worked hard to stay in control because something inside feels out of control. Yeah. And oftentimes people with this will have trauma histories or they'll have cultural histories that tell them that they have to drive themselves hard. Yeah. And so that particular myth is a tough one as well. And again, only if someone really wants to work with it and really has a sense of, I get why I would want to be in my heart. Um, you know, the story I talk about is actually a composite of two different people that I've worked with just to protect identities um, of a, a top military man, a Navy SEAL, who really was having a terrible time at home. 
and was on the verge of divorce because he could not open his heart. And he had such a trauma history. It was so sad. But he, he under it all, had such a big, huge heart. And when I could help him to begin to feel it and not feel crazy about it and began to help him gather the skill sets to have a sense of the container that was him that his heart rested in to get his bones, to get his heart, to get his belly. It, it took a lot of work, took a lot of commitment, but he actually was able to do it and it changed the face of his marriage and it, it changed his life, which was very cool. And I've, I've seen that a lot. Yeah. But again, it takes work. It takes yeah. somebody really being willing to do that. Let me see what was my next one. Number three. Ah, the body is seductive and leads you astray. Mm. Okay, so this one has to do with the fact that most of us are very out of touch with our sensuality and our sexuality. And in our culture, um, it's used to sell us things. You know, the advertisers know if it's sexy, they can sell it to you. Um, you know, think about that really cute Fiat ad that had, you know, the, the sexy Italian woman and the sleek dress. Right. And, you know, that's a great, great ad. But, but really what happens with that is that when we can't acknowledge who we are and, and let all the cells of who we are radiate, what begins to happen is it ends up in our shadow. And the minute it's in the shadow, it's out of sight. It starts to control us in a really bizarre kind of a way. So, you know, you get the congressman who's, who has a homosexual prostitute relationship on the side, who's a conservative Christian, you know, that's the kind of thing that's, that's sexuality in the shadow. Mm-hmm. You have, you have the story of the, that top educator that I um, treated again, I've changed the story to protect her, but you know, perfectly good marriage and ended up in, um, in an affair that was hot and torrid. And she was someone who was very high ranking um, official to completely out of touch with that part of herself. Yeah. So, you know, these are things that are very important to remember. If we don't claim it, it'll control us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's and I know that there's there's a lot of work that's done with that in the addictions community, yeah. because oftentimes that can be um, that can be a big deal. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. Body myth number two is the body is dangerous and mysterious. In other words, we can't really understand what it is that our body is trying to tell us and that there are things inside of us that are truly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And these would be things like emotions that we've kept under wraps and just really cranked down on, like anger or um, parts of ourselves we really don't like. Again, things that are in the shadow. When you have things that are in your shadow, um, that's a problem. And oftentimes then trauma occurs in the story of that, and that is, is just heartbreaking, but um, kind of close to my story. Um, so that is interesting. The very first one I love is the body is too painful. Um, many, many people who have had trauma, when they come to the exercises that I teach and the skills that I teach people to do, all the different tools for dropping inside and feeling what's going on, the first thing they hit is this wall of pain. Like their heart just starts screaming or their gut just, ah, you know. Most people don't have the, um, they don't have the, the chutzpah to stick with it. And, it, and instead of being able 
to stay with it and hold it in a new way. They end up getting sucked down the rabbit hole of that old pain, and then they get sucked out of the present moment and into the past. And then it's just re-traumatizing to feel that pain. So the whole piece of what I do is I teach people, here's what it feels like to be in the present moment of sensation, and sensation that actually helps you build your inner energy reservoir and build the container of who you are. And when you do that, now you have a structure, a foundation, upon which your pain can rest, be held, be nurtured and loved, and eventually integrated. Mm -hmm. And pain, when it's truly met and seen and felt, does naturally slowly over time or sometimes quickly depending on the person it begins to dissolve it just truly truly lets go and then you can integrate that part of your body where the pain was all locked down yeah Yeah. Yeah. energy store was blocked off i've off i've had numerous experiences actually where i've reintegrated pain and i know there's still plenty there um there is yeah (laughs) but i know exactly what you're saying and uh it's a really beautiful experience to feel that release and that energy kind of open up. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So I really appreciated when you were writing about that. Um, at least from my own direct experience knowing oh, yeah. it's a yeah. very real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so keeping of course with trauma, what does the latest research tell us about how unresolved trauma can impact our lives? And I know we've been talking a little bit about that, but I mean, like really everyday examples that maybe like a relative of mine, for example, might not even be aware of, you know, they right. quote unquote might be your typically normal person, right. um, but have like you were, you were mentioning the congressman and that the sexual affair, but, you know, right. bringing it back to maybe a, a more basic everyday experience, mm-hmm. um, what might that look like for them? So here's what we know happens physiologically. When something traumatic happens, now this could be getting cut off in traffic and almost having somebody like being in an accident, right? So your nervous system kind of goes, (gasps) and literally just, and your heart races, clamps down, you go into fight or flight. Um, If it feels too overwhelming, what we do is we freeze. And when you freeze... It, you, you not only do you stay clamped down inside, but now you dissociate in one direction or another. And, and now you're sort of behind, the phrase beside himself with fear mm. becomes true. Okay. And so uh, one of the saddest stories actually is, is actually a true story. One of my very, very first trauma clients that I worked with 30 years ago. Um, yeah, it would have been about 30 years ago one of the worst trauma histories I'd ever heard up until that time. And I have heard some worse ones since then, but not a lot. And she and I worked together and I made so many mistakes in working with her. This was 30 years ago. And my heart, my heart was in the right place. I really wanted to help her. She really got that I wanted to help her. So she allowed me to muddle around and not do it all right. Exactly. But, and she came out the other end better for it. Um, And somewhere about six months into our working together regularly, she comes in and she says, oh my God, I was leaving my psychotherapist's office last week and I got mugged in a dark parking lot getting into my car. And I was like, oh. 
And I realized in aftermath of that, her sharing that, that one of the reasons why that occurred to her, well, yes, there was some jerk in the parking lot, but she was so constantly beside herself with fear. She had so little sensation in her body that that gut sense that I probably would have had uh, walking out the door to the office, turning to go to that parking lot, and I probably would have felt, or you might have felt that clutch of, whoa, something's not right here. Go back into the building. Make sure there are lights on, mm-hmm. right? She missed all of those because she, she wasn't home in her own navigational system to actually get the signal that the body would have sent her had she been able to hear it. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I making sense? Perfectly. Yeah. So these are the kinds of things that have happened across the years, Chris, where I just go, oh, oh, this is one of the, this is one of the consequences of not being in your body or of being in your body but having parts of yourself where the encapsulated trauma is just locked in to place. Dr. John Upledger, who I teach for, um, have taught for for 30 years, 31 years, calls it an energy cyst. Mm-hmm. And what he basically says is that when a trauma happens to you and something in that trauma is overwhelming, um, you have a negative emotion, you're terrified, you're grief-stricken, you're guilty or ashamed, you're um, angry. Negative energetic matrix happening at the time of a trauma will just lock it into place every time. Okay? Um, That same person who got cut off in traffic and almost got hit if you don't have a trauma history, you take some deep breaths, you keep driving, and by the time you get where you're going, you're better. Yeah. Someone who has a trauma history, by the way, has a hard time bringing their system back in for a landing. Once it's off and running, they may be on tenterhooks, like feeling like everything is all day long. Yeah. And maybe for days into weeks. Yeah. Okay? And so am I answering what you were asking? Yeah, yeah. So okay. so what how do we work with that? Ah, okay. So the two things that I do yeah. is I teach people to slow down. Okay. I teach them how to go inside cuz most people don't live as oh, I said oh yeah, sure. from here down, okay? And and I'll get them to start paying attention well number one with curiosity and growing their awareness and trusting what they get. So curiosity, awareness, and trust, my little cat formula there. (laughs) With those, I have people start to ask themselves questions about, you know, what's the temperature of the air that I'm breathing right now? And you might just take a minute now and just do it yourself and just... The temperature of the air, the feeling of it going back into your sinuses and then down into your lungs. And the felt sense of your chest rising and falling. And sometimes someone will say to me, well, I can, I can tell you that it's cool when it goes in my nose. I can't feel anything from here down. That tells me there's, there's trauma there. Yeah. And, and it's not, I don't look at them as though they've done something wrong. Right. right. I just know, oh, oh, this poor person, or it's not a poor person, this person has got something that's probably frozen right there for some reason. So then I begin to work by just sitting and meeting them and being kind. I teach them how to start to um, drop in deeper and deeper. We learn how to ground together. We learn how to fill up 
with sensations that are nourishing and nurturing so that their energy reservoir grows and grows and grows and the container of who they are gets bigger and bigger and that they then are able to hold trauma, whatever they're capable of, they'll be able to hold each trauma as it comes up. As their container gets big enough, a trauma that they can deal with might show up. Um, And so they can then hold it, love it, have a kind and tender way of being with it until it begins, as we just talked about earlier, the pain dissolves when you truly meet it. Yeah, This might be a place of numbness. Some people don't even know that they've got anything going on that's wrong until until they do that first core embodiment process, that grounding and filling. And I'll say, you know, the first thing I do is I take a baseline. Well, where are you most present? Where are you not present? And, and it is just stunning to hear the things in a room of people. Uh, and honestly, it's not unusual to have someone who has a lot of trauma or a lot of neglect not feel much from here to their pelvis. Yeah. Yeah. Or they'll suddenly be a, a big chunk of darkness right here in the left hip or their heart feels like it is like this this size and about this tight or and it's just it's so fascinating to me all of the different variations on this theme that i have seen and worked with across the years mostly doing craniosacral therapy but also just in speaking and being present with people right yeah. yeah, as you're yeah. speaking, and, and I noticed this earlier before too. You, you've mentioned a few times now about you know from the neck up, and mm. I remember one of my first times in therapy. I don't consider myself an intellectual, but I do mm-hmm. like to understand. I want to know everything. How does it work? <laughs> and one of my first uh, clinicians was like, "You need to stop that. It's okay to want to know things, but you need to learn how to feel." And you need to make that trip from the head to the heart and start, you know, spending more time there and really working there. And that's something I know you write about in this book, the wisdom of the heart and why it's so important to be connected to not only that, but the other wisdoms of the body. So, Mm. you know, I think we'd mentioned the pelvis earlier, um, Mm -hmm. but maybe you could talk about the heart first okay, and then... If you feel moved uh, to expand into the other areas of the body that you think are worth mentioning in the time that we have for this conversation. But definitely, I know the heart is a big source of it. Yeah. So the heart was one of the first things that began to get research. Yeah. And the heart is actually one of the things as a culture that part of our culture, gender-wise, is actually given permission to feel our hearts. Women are actually given permission to feel our hearts and the relatedness of ourselves to other people. In fact, we're encouraged to do that. Men, not so much, right? Right. So, you know, and I, I often say to the men in my classes, how many of you were actually encouraged as little boys to have the full tenderness of your hearts and to really express it. And nowadays, depending on how young or old the men might be, I'll get a little hand that goes up and all the rest of the men are looking at me like, are you crazy? (laughs) And then the funny thing is then, but then they'll say, I'll say to them, and then what happened when you grew up, you fell in love? What's the first thing your partner wants from you? Love? 
Yes, to feel the to feel the vulnerability of your heart. They want to yeah. feel safe being vulnerable with you. And yet here you have just spent two decades learning how to crank down on it and not feel it because God, mm-hmm, it, you are not supposed to. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be a man, you can't do that, yes. right? So, so it's just absolutely fascinating. The, the thing that women, the parts of women's bodies that they're not really allowed to, to feel or encouraged to feel in our culture is their pelvises, mm-hmm. their gut. To be able to feel their power, their, um, their outrage, mm-hmm. their sensuality and sexuality without being seen as being a slut. Right. Okay? So those are, these are things that all of us have, but the heart is the thing that we as women actually are given permission to feel early on. And then what was interesting to me was that HeartMath, the HeartMath Institute, began doing research um, early on, and it's been now three, four decades of research. I just heard um, Roland McCready at a London, the conference in London I was in in May. What a delightful person. So he actually talked about the, their latest research, and I love what they're doing, because they have actually, they talk about the heart brain. Yes. And right. how when the heart rate variability is coherent, that what opens up is this, this channel of feedback, neural feedback to the brain. You think more clearly, you are more creative, you can actually see things, see the lens of what's going on in a wider way, when the heart is coherent and um, and has good heart rate variability, mm-hmm. and they've done lots and lots of research um, very recently, that's quite exciting for me. Um, but one of the key ones that they talk about, because they really their their bandwagon is the heart, right? But what they're really starting to show is things that might be the heart and the gut, but they don't talk about the gut. So I'm here. I'm going to just I'm going to challenge them just a little bit, yeah, yeah. because. I think what they are talking about in their latest research, where they said that the body, we're talking from here to your pelvis, like so your heart and your gut, really, know and pick up information, incoming information from the environment before you can visually see it, before you can hear it, before the brain registers it at all. It actually registers in the gut and the heart. So... This is very, very interesting information. And the, so the heart math people are, you know, the heart brain, I think, is absolutely vital to us as human beings. But the heart brain needs to be connected to the gut brain, the enteric brain, right. in order to really have the safety of that partnership. Those two are supposed to go together. Mm. And then you yeah. also talk about, aside from that, and this was something I found interesting because... In all of my practice, I've had very little experience with the wisdom or just experience of my legs and feet. And you talk about that. I would love for you to share about that because I was, I'm reading that. I'm like, really? Um, So yeah, yeah, I would love for you to share a little if you don't mind about that with listeners too. Well, and here's where research, this is like, you're seeing this more and more in the research just in the last five years, which is really kind of cool. So what they know about the feet and legs is that when you get them moving, when you go take a walk or a good run, uh, maybe a swim, I don't know. I can't really speak to swimming as I haven't done that in a couple decades. I'm allergic to chlorine, but, Uh but, but I mean, I did a lot of it early on, which is probably why I'm allergic to chlorine. But one of the things about the feet and legs is that 
when you get them moving, they actually help you metabolize whatever is going on in your system that's got you a little uh, confused or, or overwhelmed by. So um, there's a great, I was actually writing this chapter in the book, and then this wonderful ebook comes in from Greg Braden, and he's talking about the circumstance that happened for him, and I'm, I'm going to screw up the date when it happened. I want to say it was in the late 80s or early 90s, the Luxor massacre in Egypt, where those terrorists killed like 54 tourists and four police and et cetera. Well, he was due to take a group of 30 or 40 people to Egypt within a month, a month and a half. Yeah. And everybody was like, this was before cell phones. And he said his phone just rang off the hook. Yeah. People telling him, oh, you can't not take us. We're so excited about it. And other people calling and saying, you can't possibly go. It's so dangerous. And, you know, the Egyptian government saying, ah, we're not sure. And right. the American government, I mean, it was all over the map. Yeah. And he credits his heart as giving him the answer. But here's the clue. I love this. And I wonder if I can find it in the book because it's uh, just, I love the, the way that he talks about it. It's so lovely because um, he, he says at the time, oh, I love it. He says, my heart told me the answer. Okay, so he says, clearly this was one of those times when the decision was not black and white. There was no right or wrong, no way of knowing what would happen over the course of the following days and weeks. There was only me, my instincts, my intuition, and my promise to honor my group and myself with the best choice possible. Overwhelmed by the chaos of information and opinions. Does this sound like today's world? <laughs> I, tur I turned off the telephone, shut off the input from other people, and from, from my home in the high desert of northern New Mexico, I went for a long walk down a dirt road that I have visited many times in the past when I had a tough decision to make. Mm -hmm. Now, he comes back and he says, I knew in my heart, my, my heart's intelligence told me, go ahead and go. But the way he got to that answer was on that walk. And he even says, a, a path that I have walked many times before. So here he is, he's using the wisdom that wakes up in the feet and legs when you move them. But he doesn't recognize it as such. He yeah. wants to define it as the heart's wisdom. Right. That's great. I mean, he's a, he's a great heart math proponent. So I understand why he would mistakenly say that. But the truth is, it was both. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, the trip was a huge success. They actually got into pyramids that had not been seen by the public ever because wow. it was just this one group. They were so heavily protected. They, they had special, uh, they just got all kinds of special attention. So he said it was the trip of a lifetime. Wow. And had he not come to that, you know, he would not have had that. So there's a, a circumstance where people see, this is a perfect example. People have ways they know that they, they get answers. They don't actually remember or know why. And all my book is really doing is saying, look, let's make it conscious. Yeah. We've been doing it for thousands of years. Why not make it conscious? And by the way, 
as a culture, we have moved out of our bodies. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Totally. And the, the speed we go at, the amount of technology we have, the multitasking that goes on, the, um, the trauma. Trauma is a huge thing that moves us out of the present moment mm-hmm. of sensation and either into the past and the trauma story or into the anxiety of the future. Okay, so all of these things help us, they don't help us, they hinder us from being in the present moment in our bodies. And my point is, we belong knowing, I mean, it's our birthright to know how to consciously, purposefully move back, come home to our bodies and the tremendous amount of wisdom that they have and gifts they have for us. Oh, the I mean, the inspiration of the heart when it wakes up is just exquisite. And, and the, you know, the juiciness of being able to really feel your sensuality and not feel ashamed of it and have it be integrated with everything else, not locked away, but just, yeah, this is a part of who I am. Yeah. doesn't mean I'm going to do something out of integrity. It just means I feel joy in being alive. Yeah. I love that. And I think that is the perfect spot for us to... Bring this to a close. I mean, there's a million more things I could talk to you about. Um, the book contains so much more. The website, again, is healingfromthecore.com. Is there another website, or is that the main one where people can find you that, at? That is the website that people can find me at, healingfromthecore.com. Wonderful. And Suzanne, do you have any upcoming workshops or online events or anything you'd like to share with the audience? You know, I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I am actually, uh, I teach at Esalen every year, Esalen Institute. Yeah. And this year, because of their partial closing, I've gotten, I've lost, uh, I'm not going to be able to be there, which I'm still grieving about. Sure. But there's a brand new workshop just outside of Santa Cruz called 1440. Yep. 1440.org. Great. It's for the number of minutes in a day. It is absolutely spectacular. And two of my workshops got relocated there for the last week of August and Labor Day weekend. And I'll actually get to see Gabor Mate again because he'll be there for that. So cool. Yeah. And I understand you've also, you also teach there. Yeah. Well, I will be going out there. I have not yet. (laughs) But um, yeah, like I was saying earlier, my friend uh, Mirabai Bush has had Mm -hmm. quite a hand in developing that. And uh, it looks amazing. Um, Doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. looks amazing. So, oh, congrats on that. Congrats on everything you're doing. And more than that, thank you for what you're doing. You know, this book, I can only imagine how many people, you know, who've read it and it's truly changed their lives and how many, hopefully more, after hearing this conversation, will pick up a copy. Again, it's called Reclaiming Your Body, Healing from Trauma and Awakening to Your Body's Wisdom. Um one of the probably most important books I've read so far this year, which I know is a big statement because I am a big reader, but really, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. And, uh, I deeply honor you and, uh, and, and your mission for doing it. Thank you so much, Suzanne. And thanks for being on the show with me today. Thank you. Can I close with a quote from the book? Of course you can. Okay. Okay. Thanks. It's on page eight, actually. I love this. I mean, it kind of says it all. The most important relationship in your life, your relationships with other people throughout your lifetime, with your parents, spouses, children, friends, and teachers, will shift as time passes and situations change. As long as you're alive, however, your body is always with you. 
It is so beneficial to have a strong, deep, intimate relationship with your own unique physical self. Your body's designed to guide you, keep you safe, and bring you full vitality and joy. It is the vehicle through which you create and manifest your thoughts and dreams into reality. In this book, you'll discover how establishing and nurturing a healthy relationship with your body will allow you to reclaim lost parts of yourself, tap into your body's wisdom, and better navigate your life. Couldn't have, couldn't have summed it up any better. <laughs> Suzanne, thank you so much for your time and your work in the world. It's needed, appreciated, and uh, I'm very grateful for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's Thanks. been a, such a pleasure. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Chris. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.